you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Man, I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to tackle this one. Tackle? Oh, oh, why is that? Well, I, I think... You see, wait, we used to use your stoner back in the day or what, man? Um, no comment? No comment. Next question, please. <laughs> Next question. I plead the fam. No, um, no, well... No, I... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's more so well it's been a long time coming we haven't talked about this issue, yes man. well and that's it right that it's it's been a long time coming that's why i'm excited right At yeah some yeah point, yeah um this issue um I'll, actually let me let me it's a mini prep which or before we get into sort of the current you know situation the opioid mm-hmm. crisis that the, the thing as soon as we brought this up or as soon as we're like okay let's talk about this again i knew instantly the first article that i was going back to and and that was i mean i i found uh a couple articles it's a guy named uh it's about a a, a kid or a, a young man named ryan hedekin his parents are in bc the story stood out to me because this was a man who or a young man who was going through recovery sort of rehab stints his parents had spent like something like $70,000 on him doing a whole bunch of rehab programs and he relapsed and he overdosed or I should say he died on a job site so he'd basically done drugs on his lunch break and died he was essentially struggling with heroin and the crazy part was his parents were one of the his parents' claims was they wanted the cause of death to be changed from overdose to poisoning because he was trying to buy heroin, but he died because it had fentanyl in it. Mm-hmm. And so this is a common issue within this yes. in a in a greater scale, which is that Black market drugs are very hard to ascertain what you are buying, especially when you start to talk about opioids and synthetic opioids and all that, you know, rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, a, a, this is a great example where this guy didn't die of a drug overdose, but we call it a drug overdose. And so this issue has, to me, this this story, I have a great article from Globe and Mail that actually has like, three people's stories uh, it's called how could this happen after losing loved ones to opioids grieving relatives take action so i thought this was the best article of that story about brett hedekin so i'll put that in or sorry ryan hedekin um yeah. so i'll put that yeah. in the show notes page but um, you know, for that's, me that's yeah. that's what made me want to talk about this that's why i'm sort of like i'm excited okay Okay, yeah, yeah, good. That's definitely gonna hit some points in um the conversation going forward uh, for me i think <laughs> the reason why I want to talk about it is because uh, I'm from the um, say no to drugs 
generation. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 I grew up. I grew up with the with the commercials. Don't you put um, it in your mouth? Don't yeah. You put don't it you in. don't you put it in your mouth? Um, um. And what's the other one? Um. The don't don't you put it in your mouth? And then um. I have some like you know Sesame Street type character yeah, in my um, head of like. There was another one. Um, <laughs> I can't remember how how it went, but um. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, a lot, lot, a lot of um, of those promo commercials and hey man, hey Joel, why don't you just take a drag of this man? Just Everybody no else to- is doing it. And you know what's funny is I, I don't remember where I heard it. I wish I had a source for this, but I feel I, I, I feel like I have this recollection, or I have this like deja vu to hearing someone talk about this. You know, say no to drugs campaigns. And and realistically, if any, like they didn't they didn't reap a, a, a net benefit. If anything, they they sort of caused kids to be more experimental. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's um, like, you know, I was telling my parents this story, uh, a totally unrelated story, but but the punchline was like, you told me don't say this word, so me as a kid was like, oh, I guess I got to say that word, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know that that like. Just as a kid, a young person, when you don't educate on, you know, the good and the bad of something and you just say don't, like, there's the natural rebellious nature of children is going to be like, well, of course I got to figure out why my parents said no. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people being incentivized by forbidden fruit, mm. uh, young people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I was kind of excited. So it's kind of weird. Yeah, now the first as I prohibition to- didn't work out either, did it? what adam oh 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 yeah 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 it's a good one um yeah no it's just one of those things where now you know as i read more and study more on the issue i'm realizing that um that legalization uh decriminalization is is um a viable option so it's just weird for me because i grew up that you know we shut down drugs uh like tupac once said you know they got a war on poverty Instead of, oh, instead of a war on poverty, they got a war on drugs so the police can bother me. Okay, yeah. That's, what I, that's, that's the whole thing I was thinking. I was like, okay. Well, and, and you know, let's, let's steel man that sort of position. That position or that argument is that by making it illegal, you know, we, we're going to drive up. We're going we're gonna to decrease the supply, we're gonna, which will cause the price to go up, which will cause, you know, overall quantity to go down, which therefore will lead to a lower negative consequence of drugs. And I mean it's 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 a very simplistic argument and I would suggest that uh the unintended consequences of prohibition or the cost of the prohibition action is unaccounted for in that assessment. But it is a reasonable argument or let's call it a reasonable hypothesis as to why making something illegal could reduce the harms of that particular thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on society or on yeah. communities or whatever way you want to word it. Yeah. Well, let's get into drugs, 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 which are good, which are bad. Drugs, drugs, drugs. <laughs> ask your mom, ask your dad. <laughs> so, uh, Global News, Global News released an article. It was November 9th by Sabia Aziz. Uh, and, and basically what, um, what they're reporting is that 
uh, there are growing calls across Canada to decriminalize the possession and use of illicit drugs as the country grapples with an opioid overdose crisis that has killed thousands of Canadians. So last week, British Columbia became, oh, as of last week of that time, British Columbia became the first province to officially request the federal government for an exemption from criminal penalties for people who possess small amounts of illicit drugs for personal use. This came after Vancouver submitted its own proposal to Health Canada in June. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Toronto is preparing to do that as well, uh, to make a similar plea uh, later this year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's, I think my first instinct is how is government going to screw this up? Um, well, yeah, you, you say it, you say it in a, in a, in a joking way, but it's true. Uh, I was doing my own little research and um, I was looking at like what we've done thus far uh, as it relates to the marijuana um, and legalizing our cannabis, <laughs> we're legalizing uh, cannabis and what we've already done. And um, this is an article from Fee uh, called Canada's Marijuana Legalization is Tainted by Big Government. And it's by Benjamin L. Woodfinden. Woodfinden. And, and basically, uh, they're saying it's just, you know, you know basic math that um, the government price for cannabis is higher than the black market. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, you got to remember, okay, so Canada, I and mean, we talked about this on o, the O Cannabis episode, I think. Years right? ago. Like, yeah, years ago. Man, that's crazy. <laughs> um, was that 2018 <laughs> yeah, or 2019? No, I, wow. I think it was three. It was like one of our first episodes, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I, I wasn't sure if it was season one or season two. Which, what's funny is like we say season one, season two, but for like the audience, they they don't necessarily even know because it's like, oh, the first fifteen episodes is season one, and you know whatever. But anyways, the sidebar. But what I was saying on the old cannabis episode, I think, which I I'll say it now more so is when when Canada was rolling out as regulation the the producers had so many regulations it was insane and and the best example of that was you couldn't you didn't it was insufficient to have all of the entrances and exits of the facility a production facility i.e. growing facility it was insufficient to have the entrance and exits cameraed you had to have literally the entire square footage of the facility on camera. You were not allowed to have a single dark spot. Now, I think things have been relaxed a little bit now, but this is like, you know, when they were first rolling out this regulation. So that's where this article that you referenced, I think if I got the same one in front of me, it's uh, 2018. So yeah, it'll probably speak to a lot of the early issues some of those things may have changed uh most likely the lobbyists would have got the government to pull back some of the regulations now that the big boys are in you know and they can already uh keep the the small fish from uh, entering the market but yeah we i mean we were our producer was just laughing at uh in, in a chat with us that uh that we called it uh regarding you know the essentially there was uh was it the oh here it is san francisco suspends cannabis tax to help dispensaries compete with drug dealers <laughs> mhm 
mm-hmm. yeah, just that like you know the the regulated market, the government market, it it has its huge downfalls. Like this is a prime example of how regulation increased the costs to the point where you can't compete because you have a lower quality product at a higher price. Now, it's is cannabis is a total sidebar from, you know, the opioid scenario because you don't have the same level of risk with these particular with with cannabis, right? There's zero recorded deaths directly attributed to cannabis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So overdosing is not a concern. Now, obviously someone could like lace it with, yeah, you know, I don't know, Lysol or something ridiculous. Generally speaking, crack. Well, yeah, I was gonna, but in general, the these are you know drug dealers. Let, let's say when it was black market, even you know now with the, the let's call it the gray market in Canada, um, or in uh, San Francisco, as that uh, post I was reading, the gray markets. You know, there, there's a there's a competition there that you know the or sorry the what i was trying to say was the dealers or the people in those markets they they don't want to kill their customer i mean even in the opioid crisis for the most part when we're talking about that story that i was discussing you know it's not like the dealer had the intention of of giving a lethal dose because you know they want their customer to come back the the issue to some extent is the fact that prohibition and the black market changes the dynamic of a customer and producer relationship because you no longer have legal recourse generally speaking how do the how does the black market resolve conflict mm-hmm. violence what do you mean i mean just just where does the gang wars come from it's it's competition over territory for uh, the black market how do we compete in the white market or the whatever legitimate market you you sell a better product you open up more stores, right? Property rights. But when, when you don't have legal recourse to, you know, when you're already in the shadows, this is the thing that like, this is where I was sort of hinting at earlier when I said the unintended consequence of the prohibition. I would argue there's a faulty or a utopian perspective sometimes that prohibition will make it go away. No, it will never go to zero, right? Like, and then the other side of this, to some extent, with the prohibition statement is like, I think there's this, there's two utopian visions. One is that it'll go away, but two is it'll prevent, you know, the innocent single mother from taking up a drug habit, or like the point is, oh, because it's illegal, somehow we're gonna we're gonna prevent some level of you know addiction. And generally speaking, people just. Per, you know, if if people want to do it, they're gonna do it, right? If if heroin was made a le- was made legal tomorrow, I don't think any of our listeners are gonna be like, oh, let's go do that. Mm-hmm. Like, no one, no one's going out to go get heroin because it became a le- it became legal tomorrow. Basically, the 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 people who are already doing it are the ones who are gonna go get it, potentially. And and so it's just there's and so that's the the one the other utopian side is that oh. People are, if people are still going to go get it, well, now I always, that's why I always, I've joked, I think I joke on the podcast. I've, I know I joke with my friends, like, oh, the black market always provides. Why? Because there's a demand. Somebody wants it. Just because you made it illegal doesn't mean they're not going to want it anymore. Mm-hmm. It just means that only those who are willing to pay a 
probably a slightly higher price, are willing, or those who are willing to break the law are the ones who are going to still do it. So then, like, because part of the issue that people are concerned with, or the country's concerned with, is the uh, the, the rise in overdoses, uh, especially especially in light of um, in light of uh, COVID nineteen measures. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, Why and, is that? Well, and and I mean, I would say to you, the rise in overdoses, sort of a secondary issue. If anything, I would say the rise, or or the, and uh, you know maybe you can speak to what you think about the COVID nineteen impacts are, but I would say that's sort of a second that I, that's pushing the underlying issue to a head, right? Like the issue was already there, right? We already have drug overdoses, we already have these these problems in society, right? The fentanyl, the the toxicity, drug toxicity causing death, as the example, the story I told or or referenced. That was already there, and this is where you know Portugal and and what they've done is sort of a contrast to say, if it's legal, what is the net outcome? Again, goes if we if we agree, we can't result in the utopian scenario where we just make drugs go away. So there's always going to be some level of society that does it, which therefore then means there's always going to be some level of addiction which means there's always going to be some level of harm to communities because of addiction and abuse of substances. The question becomes, how do we minimize those harms and how do we help restore people who have, let's say, shirked their responsibilities while going down those rabbit trails or, or down those um, detrimental habits? Yeah, and I get that's something new. And that's something, well, most people, because most people, you know, grew up thinking that, you know, drugs are bad. And so the war on know, drugs. War on drugs, yeah. All that and and um carding, policing. That's where you get, you know, like Tupac said, that's where you get the harassing of black people um in, in black communities. And it's kind of like um well it's not kind of there is like this trade off and there's a meme. Um there's a picture of a police officer, um a banking guy and a drug cartel. And the question is, is it time to end the war on drugs? The police officer says no. The banker mm. says no. And the drug cartel says no. And all of them are holding um, a bag of money in their hand. So the, the police officer's uh, bag of money says bigger budgets. The bank says laundry. And then the um, drug cartel, his bag says profits. And I mean, there's another, uh, there's a great article from Fee. Uh, it says lessons from Portugal about ending the drug war. The very end of it has a, a meme from uh, Milton Friedman or with a Milton Friedman quote. It says, if you look at the drug war from a purely economic point of view, the role of government is to protect the drug cartel. Mm-hmm. Now, I, maybe some of our listeners are like, what? That doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? Simple statement is, the government enforces prohibition, which allows the drug cartel to to continue. Yeah, so so the pro- prohibition creates uh, a black market, mm-hmm. right? And it actually, you know, kind of reminds me of that economic principle, uh, bootleggers and Baptists. <laughs> um, actually, you know, that sounds like a great Christian hip hop album. 
<laughs> I was gonna uh, say, um, whose whose economic principle is this? Uh, oh, oh, you, oh, you never heard of it before? Um, I, I mean, maybe I've heard the the non uh, colloquial term of it. What? what oh, this that? guy named um, an economist named uh, Bruce Yandel. Okay. Bruce Yandel. And so the idea with uh, Baptists and bootleggers is that uh, the Baptists on Sundays, they don't want people drinking, so they lobby to um, close up um, alcohol um, liquor stores on the Sunday. And so that benefits the bootleggers. So the bootleggers are for that policy because um, they're profiting off of um, the Sunday sales. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Bootleggers and Baptists, and and I love that. I love that good. phrase. Yeah. Um, but the idea, the idea that that I think is important for us to understand is that prohibition, and this is from the article that you referenced. Um, prohibition makes opioids more dangerous because it forces the market underground, which inhibits normal quality control. In legal markets, consumers know the uh, potency of the drugs they purchase. They do not buy beer and receive grain, alcohol, or um, aspirin and get morphine. So mm -hmm. uh, if opioids are easily accessible, people tend to use the substance they desire. When access is limited, however, some customers obtain an insufficient quantity and therefore improvise with alcohol or um Benzodiazepines yeah, and other benzo drugs. Benzodiazepines or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so taking the drugs benzos. together. Yeah, yeah. Benzos. Uppers, downers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So taking these drugs together increases the risk of overdose, especially when dealing with uh, depressants Yeah, like opioids, which according to the government um, document from the state of South Australia, can cause a person's breathing and heart rate to decrease dangerously. So these are this, so this is what we talk about, you know, all the time about unintended consequences of policies. Like some policies look great on the surface, but then when you follow, um, when you follow the, the the money trail, and you start to say, okay, wait a minute. So, you know, like can't like economics is the science of making choices and the reallocation of scarce resources. So, if people aren't um, able to get their drugs over the counter because you know there's there's whether there's might be too much or there might be legal restrictions on on doctors being able to give it out they can always just go to the black market and get it problem with the black market is they can't they're not you know man you're not sure what you're getting but because people are in, are in such a bad place in a desperate place you know they're they're willing to take the well, risk and and i mean you got to remember, at the same time, there is an ability potentially for the black market to to provide in a productive manner, and and you know the simple example there would be, you know, take cannabis. For the vast majority of black market transactions, you know, you're not getting it laced with crack, and and why does that exist? Well, because people develop relationships. And so trust gets developed and you're dealing with a non-risky product. Again, it's relatively easy to certify something that is literally a plant and not a chemical is the plant you expected it to be. And so my, my point is that, you know, the black market is not always going to be the worst case scenario or, you know, the 
causing more deaths inherently because it's the black market. The issue is the consequences of the black market, as you just said, okay, people are going to, people inherently are going to be more risky because they're already doing something illegal. Now, take the example of you've got a dealer who's gets, you know, a one-off customer. That, that dealer is going to be more risky. The customer is going to be more risky. And you have more scenarios that, that result in, in, you know, death or, or bad outcomes. But if I was to contrast it with, you know, as I go back to the cannabis scenario, you know, what's the, what, what's the, like, I'm thinking about from an exploitation perspective, they're going to try to rip me off, right? Oh, you know, weigh it down, make it weigh more. So I pay more, right? Like there, yeah, there's still exploitation. And, and that's why I was using the cannabis as a great example where like the exploitation doesn't result in a significant harm. But in the case of opioids, potentially that there's a greater risk that the exploitation of me comes with a synthetic opioid that can kill me because of the, you know, the issues. And, and just for context, the issues being you, there's continually a drive to create more, a higher potency, which then would lower tra- uh, transportation costs because I need a lower weight to get an, you know, for a, let's call it a dose that gets someone high. And so now there's also a great, an easier ability to accidentally have a lethal dose because we're mm-hmm. dealing in, in smaller quantities. Mm-hmm. But the other issue is that with opioids, you know, many times, this is where the exploitation comes in. Someone's asking for heroin, but they're not getting heroin. And they don't know it. So again, what I said before, it's a really easy to some extent to ascertain that I'm getting a plant, but it's not so easy to ascertain I'm getting getting a chemical. Um, yeah, and then um, we were looking. We, me and you both were listening to a podcast from the Toronto Star. It was really good. It was. Um, yeah, it was. What was it? Uh, it was uh, the called, podcast called This Matters. Yeah. The opioid crisis, how Toronto's street drug supply is getting more dangerous. And in the show, um, they, uh, the guest was Robert Cribb. So basically, Toronto Star investigates um, investigative reporter and director of the Investigative Journalism Bureau at the University of Toronto. And, um, and so they were talking about being able to assess the drugs um so they had people um people who were dealers and people who were also users and they basically you know like drop off a supply yes yeah it was very it was very interesting that part was probably the most like peculiar interesting part of the podcast yeah and, and so and so they were able to um take it to the lab and get the drugs tested so they at least know what's on the street and yeah red flags started coming up from um um the guys who were working on the drugs and they were like, oh, wait, these are laced with all kinds of crazy things. Yeah, there was like carfentanil and fentanyl. And f- carfentanil is like a hundred times more potent than fentanyl or something mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, again, now, it goes back to what I was saying. The more potent, the, the more you can transmit, which yes. then you know means lower volume, higher value. 
Right, right. And also, Joel, I think we forgot to mention that um, from 2019, this is very important, from 2019 to 2020, um, the death rate, or correct me if I'm wrong, the death rate um, went from 20% to 80% um, in overdoses, drug overdoses. And this is what's the cause of alarm. Mm. Right? And so they're asking, okay, well, well, what caused that jump? Now, of course, we know it's, it's um, you know, you know, COVID turned the whole world on its head, um, and the unintended consequences of um, government intervention. Um, yeah, well, um, yeah, vaccine, um, um, you know, mandates and so forth, or not vaccine mandate, but um, but lockdowns, lockdowns, lockdowns yeah. Um, what what you saw was people being isolated. Um, and also um, clinics, the clinics where people would go in, injection clinics, um, were hard to get to or get into or closed. Well, yeah, they were they were locked down, right? Mm-hmm. And, and again, this is where that's why, like, I want to be very like. If you listen to this matters podcast, they'll continually say the pandemic caused the pandemic caused, but let's be very clear: it was the government's response to the pandemic that these are the unintended consequences. Agree or disagree with our views? Give us your two cents. You can leave your comments on any of our social media platforms or email us at sixcentsreport at gmail.com. Six cents makes six cents makes six cents makes So, 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 are you saying that um, legalization might not be the best? Okay, so this is where, and you're right. We sort of forgot to go down this road. But when we first, like, I don't know, five ten minutes ago, I said we need to, you know, parse out. There's two issues here. One is the the underlying issue that was already there, and that's the whole Portugal uh, as the example, which we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to. But it's the idea that, um, so that the issue I said before was that really. What's the environment where we minimize uh, habitual detrimental behaviors when it comes to drug addiction or addictive behavior with substance? So that's already an issue. What the pandemic's response and lockdowns did was made that issue more pronounced in society. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's not like this is a new issue. It's just become more pronounced. And and my point is, with regards to lockdowns, again, I say this, I, I mean, who would have thought I'm saying it on this episode, but I say it all the time. If you have a default position that where lockdowns were necessary, well, then you're just going to say, well, of course, it doesn't matter. We just have to deal with these problems as they come up. But if mm-hmm. you recognize that lockdowns were an untested hypothesis to solve the problem there's no data that proved in the past that this was an effective measure and the cost was worth the benefit. And this is the whole thing. This is one example of a significant cost of the lockdown measure that was, I would argue, not included in the assessment when they said, this is what we should do. Because they took a narrow focus and said, lockdowns. That's it. So mm-hmm. 
we can park that. I know I kind of went on a tirade. I've probably went on a tirade about lockdowns. No, before. no, no, I, no, no. I think that's a good point. I think you, I think you hit, you hit a uh, because hit a good points coming back around. You know these these locations are are closed, but the, I think there's a bigger issue, and you sort of touched it already. It's also the now people are probably doing drugs even more so in isolation, mm-hmm. and so this is where, you know, arguably the whole injection sites. Where do the val- Where does the value come from? It's that people can do drugs under supervision. That if something bad happens, they don't die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't. It's not only in that context. Like you could be in supervision with your friends who are also doing drugs, and potentially still have the ability to get help when something bad happens, right? But in lockdown world you're with other people even less. So, and this is where, you know, the whole concept of deaths of despair is what a lot of people are saying, you know, we're going to see rises in deaths of despair from lockdowns, from forcing people not to go to work, from whatever, you know, let's call it mechanism you wanted to, to identify that was going to cause people to have the deaths of the despair. Um, and, and the reason I use mechanism as a word just to say like, you know, whether that's, I don't have purpose in my life because I don't have the job. I don't have the ability to go to gym and, and, you know, strong, um, pieces or strong aspects of my life that were helping my mental health, right? There's a whole bunch of things that you could say, well, they took that away. They took that away, which could lead to more drug use, which could lead to more addiction, which can lead to more, you know, depression and and suicide. That's where also where the deaths of despair comments come from. And, And so, I would say that it is important to really recognize that the catalyst as to why this came to its head, and it's not as simple as, well, the pandemic, okay, well, let's not have any discussion as to doing it different next time as to prevent this problem. Yeah. Well, no, no. Well said. Well said. And I think for us, or just people trying to think through, okay, well, what does this look like? Uh, Thomas Sowell, great economist, always says, Economists always ask, compared to what? Mm-hmm. What are we comparing this to? Is it possible? Can is this even achievable to legalize? Because for those people who you know grew up in the um, say no to drug era uh, with the drug war, um, you know you think like this is almost social suicide uh, to <laughs> decriminalize um, these these more kind of I don't know say harder drugs. Um, but yeah, so this is where we can uh, look at Portugal. So Portugal uh, has has um, criminalized. So in 2001, Portugal became the first country to decriminalize the possession and consumption of all illicit substances. So the opioid crisis soon, um, and this is from um, the article, uh, Lessons from Portugal about ending the drug war. And so the opioid crisis uh, soon stabilized. And the ensuing years saw dramatic drops in problematic drug use, HIV, and hepatitis infection rates, overdose deaths, drug-related crime, and um, incarceration rates. HIV infection plummeted from from an all-time high in 2000 of 104.2 new cases per million to 4.2 cases per million in 2015. That's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that's if I if I'm reading that right, it's H and that was HIV infection, 
plummeted from 104 per million to four per million. Right. Now that's a span of 15 years. So obviously lots of time for, for the, let's say, effects of these policies. Um, and, and a big thing to recognize with Portugal policy, they were using, um, they call them cats, which it, it's like, um, you know, a Portuguese term, but essentially it's like a, a drug addict center. So they op- they've opened up a lot of drug addict centers. Um, and so the, re- the reason why that's important to recognize or, or to dem- is, is part of the policy was that because there's you know, places that people who want to use drugs can go, the sharing of needles essentially can be significantly reduced. If all you did was just like legalize and nothing or decriminalize, I should say, potentially, you know, right away, you're not going to reap some of these benefits because, oh, people's habits aren't going to change. You haven't changed the incentive structures, right? The, the ability to afford these things may not be possible. So that's just simply the HIV cases comes down because the needle uses, needle sharing and whatnot comes down. Yeah, no, most definitely. And it's helpful. And I think it's good um, to see what other uh, countries have done, other places have done um, with, these, with these types of policies. Um, so we can kind of look at, okay, well, what the, you know, what's the potential for, for these policies and can it work? Um, so let me ask you, Joel, what's, what's your two cents? Oh, I think, I think this is a really complex issue. Like, you know, I think it's very, th- there's a reason why they use the word decriminalization and not legalization. Because Milton, Fre- Milton Friedman's quote is still true. It's just a different drug cartel. What do you, what do you mean by that? So by legal, decriminalizing, I haven't, remove the prohibition on production right look at cannabis in canada mm-hmm. you still got to get got to jump through a mass amount of hoops to become a a, a legitimate producer right so I, I'm, I'm making a yes, joke that's right big pharma is the drug cartel that the government's protecting mm-hmm. right so so it decriminalized this is why i'm saying the issue is so messy because oh we've noticed portugal is better or has has resulted in let's say lower levels of community harm there's a i'll put another article from uh, the guardian within there they have a it's a really long article if someone wants to read it but there's a section in there that they talk about and and this might be in the fee article too because it has a lots of quotes um but there's a section in there they talk about this woman who you know was worried when they put the the drug addicts, you know, um, center in her neighborhood, that it was going to increase crime, but in reality, it decreased crime because there she had three drug dealers on a street that she didn't know about who packed up and left because the customers all went away. They all went to the you know the clinic where it was essentially you know uh, supervision. They probably were getting either free or or let's say discounted right at a low cost. Um, and that's where, again, go back to, I said, this is a complex issue because if you give away the drugs for free, well, now you've potentially incentivized increased usage, which might in- incentivize more addiction. But the other side about decriminalization is that you're, you're removing some of the stigma for people who want to get help. They're not having to admit to breaking the law. 
in order to get help. Um, so uh, the the other side of this is that so I, I the reason why I was ho- focusing on decriminalization. Mm-hmm. The other side of this is is there further is would legalization actually result in even less harms, even less addiction issues? And and I don't know that the answer is yes. I mean, my my libertarian leanings, my my free market leanings would say potentially. You know, is there a potential that having more competition in the production side of things, a little less big pharma, would result in 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 even less harms? I don't know, but I think it's important for people to recognize there's a reason why. We're only decriminalizing and not legalizing. The government still wants their control. They still want their influence. They still want to be able to hand out, you know, contracts to their big pharma buddies so that they can get yeah. their kickbacks and their lobbying and their yeah. You know, and and and, and I sorry support and Joel, and, I, and I think there's a nuance there, like what we've seen already with with what's going on with cannabis and the over regulation of the market, and so the black market is still an option for people in the black market it will still probably be an option for the opioids. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I think there's always going to be, you know, the black market is a good example where if, if, if scenarios are um, hindering the black market's going to fill the void. Now, I think in the case of decriminalization, you know, what is that? It, it, you you still can't get, you know, the opioid unless you've got a prescription, and and I mean that's a whole. No, we didn't even go down that road, and and potentially that's a whole nother podcast because the the level of liability within pharma and doctors who are overprescribing opioids and co- and and arguably were causing addiction is a part of this conversation too. But that I would argue that's where the legalization piece plays a factor. Because now someone goes to a doctor, they're trusting the doctor, and the doctor's giving them a prescription out of, you know, deception, deception's not the right word, you know, they've been lobbied or marketed to by the pharmaceutical firm about how safe and, you know, non-addictive this particular thing is. But if this was more of a free market scenario, if I had the ability to get high on a drug that is addictive, and one that's not, am I going to pick the non-addictive one? Right. I, I, like, right. Assuming they're of equal in every other component, I want to be able to say tomorrow, I don't have to take this. Like Again, this is where the idea that the gatekeeper only allows some drugs on the market, and then, oh, it's got to be prescribed by a doctor, is still going to lead to some level of black market. Because if you want Oxycontin, I think for the most part, it's almost impossible to get in Canada from a doctor. I, I'm assuming the black market knows how to get it over the border. And so that's where this issue is so deep that it's not as simple as, okay, like decriminalization is good um, to some extent. You know, and we haven't even got into that conversation of of, of why I think you know, for many people, there's sort of this removed nature of the assessment. Oh, 
they don't think about if it was their family member who was an addict, how would I want to solve the problem? And, and what I mean by that is like, if I was trying to help my family member who was addicted, locking them in a cage and giving them a criminal record for the rest of their life is not what I would be pushing for in order to help them. Again, mm-hmm. another reason why prohibition has unintended consequences. You potentially set someone up to a life of crime because you've deemed them a criminal through their criminal record, and now they can no longer provide for themselves. So that whether that's stealing, whatever it is that they do to get by, because you've now removed them from their regular access to the world, let's call it, or the, you know, the ability to, to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, if they're such a bad drug addict, they might have also removed themselves from there. I'm not, you know, I don't want to pretend like I'm. Not, there aren't also people who do that to themselves, of course. But it's it's so. I think, especially within the the you know the Christian realm, there's this. Well, it's immoral. I'm okay with punishing people, and I mean, if you look at. It's funny, you know, coming back from Ezra Institute, one of the good, one of the things that was mentioned about God's law was part of the purpose of the punishment, especially when you talk about murder, rape. Uh, I mean, I was going to say, you know, things towards children in general, essentially um, exploiting people in posi- when you have that extra position of power, whether it be a doctor with a patient, you know, child, adult. Um, the law was there, the level of punishment was to demonstrate the value of, in, this, in the case of the examples I laid out, the, the value of the life that you've harmed. And so, mm-hmm. it, coming back to this, how do we apply that in a, in a, to say, okay, what would God's law say is the appropriate punishment for someone who's, you know, whether, let's say, partaking in recreational drugs and then further being addicted to recreational drugs what would what would be within god's law of of appropriate you know punishment or appropriate consequence it's probably a better word and i mean i think to be honest my, my default answer is that i think most likely the consequences are within the community you are going to have to rebuild your trust in order for people to be willing to invest in you. Because potentially, no, now obviously if, you know, let's say just draw for simplicity, if your recreational drug use looked also like the guy who recreational drink, recreationally drinks, you know, five beers, the level of community impact is relatively minimal. So the, what, what, I don't know that there's a community impact, but obviously if you're a drug addict, you've, you know, stopped providing for your kids because you stopped going to work, you know, there, the community is going to have significant sort of uh, hindrance on you such that you would have to rebuild your trust or rebuild the relationships in order for you to continue to participate in the community. Now that's not God's law. That's, but my point is that there are natural consequences already that would occur in your community. And, you know, from a God's law perspective, I don't know how this is anything more than uh, a sin that you 
The wages of sin is death. We know how that works. Repentance and all. I'm forgiven. That that salvation relationship. So yeah, it's. I think that's why I I, I go down that road because I think for so many Christians, and I w- I would say I was there. You know, growing up as a 12 year old, you grew up in the church. It's like, oh, we punish drug dealers and and crack addicts for doing the wrong thing, but. Is that the right response? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I know I, I went on a bit of tirade there. Totally, even though we're at the two cents cents part of our conversation, I sort of brought in some new stuff. But, yeah, what's your two cents on this? Where where do you where do you think it's nuanced or where do you think people need to think about it differently? Yeah. Um, I can tell you're definitely passionate about, um, about this issue and it shows, so. Uh, you know, so that's good. That's good. Uh, sometimes it's good to, you know, expound on your thoughts and, and bring clarity to, to the issue. Uh, for me, I think it's something to keep an eye on. I'm I'm definitely looking at it from a perspective of, uh, what's the word? Uh, going from demonization to decriminalization. And I think you know, answering and looking at asking the question compared to what and looking what looking at what Portugal has done. And there were three things according to their policy that helped shape where they were going um, in regards to um, decriminalizing drugs. And the three things were, um, one, that there's no such thing as a soft or hard drug, only healthy and unhealthy relationships with drugs. Right. Um, and then point two was that an individual's unhealthy relationship with drugs often conceals frayed relationships with loved ones, uh, with the world around them and with themselves. And then the third one um, was that um, eradication of all drugs is um, an impossible goal. And I think all those points are um, reasonable and relational. And I think it comes back to the point that we talked about in previous episodes about the principle of subsidiarity, that uh, social change is um, a grassroots work, a bottom-up work, instead of a top-down work, looking at it from, okay, well, the government's the one who's going to change everything from the top down. So subsidiarity um, is a Catholic concept and Christian concept, and it focuses on the core institution of society, which is the family family, friends, um, trying to keep those things healthy. Yes, not everybody has you know a healthy family situation, but um, this is where friends come in. And so it's definitely going to take um, community work, but Portugal has shown us that it's possible. So there is hope, um, and I'll be definitely keeping an eye on that. That's my two cents. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I, yeah and when you say, you know, uh, I like that it sounds like I'm passionate about it. I think for me, I you know, we didn't really use the terminology or maybe you did early, you know, the idea of victimless crimes, right? And and sort of what I said about if it was within your family, right, is, is calling that person or classifying that person as a criminal uh, the way to go? And, and the reason I bring that up is that, like, you know, when we start talking about justice, social justice, police brutality, all those things. If something isn't illegal, how much 
do we remove the opportunity for these injustices to occur? Right? Like you, you mentioned carding early on, right? Well, if I don't have the ability to check you for drugs, can't pull you over and pat you down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and that's to me, you know, when, when I talk about, when we talk about, you know, reforming the police, when we talk, so much of this is, I think there's a question a lot of people don't ask, but I think is worth asking. Is this idea or principle worth enforcing at the end of a gun? And I think, you know, the opioid crisis is giving a different reason to get to the same question. Uh, And that's, you know, something I like about it. Uh, But it also drives me back to, okay, now let's ask that question on another scale, right? Like for me, it's, it's, this is a gateway. (laughs) This is the gateway drug into why, why are we, why are we allowing, you know, the monopoly on force to dictate how this other thing occurs and this other thing occurs when we see in this context, how the monopoly on force as a means to regulate this industry Mm -hmm. is failing miserably. That's good. That's good. Well, what do you guys think? Do you guys think that drugs should be criminalized? Did Did you learn something new um, from this? You know, did Did you grow up in the uh, "say no to drugs, don't put it in your mouth" era? <laughs> did Did we miss something? Did we? You know, is there a dimension to this that you know we haven't thought through? Um, I'll, I'll definitely have a, a bunch of stuff in the show notes page. Um, you know, a couple podcast episodes, some good stuff from the Mises Institute. There's a talk by Mark Thornton about how it's called how we won the drug war, but he's like, it's actually how we're winning the drug war. And that's a really as a pushback to, to the actual drug war itself. So yeah, hopefully we we've given the listener uh, a way to think about things differently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that uh, there's hope in light of, you know, some of the confusion that we're seeing and that these principles still carry over to other things, mm-hmm. right? So again, please give us a review, whatever uh, podcast catcher you're listening to. Five stars, say something nice. Maybe even a little criticism is all right. Yeah, we, we, we would prefer those by email as opposed to in the public, but hey, we're not going to, beggars can't be choosers. But yeah, email us, sixcentsreport at gmail.com. Give us your two cents. Success makes change. But you heard me. Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media.